Talking to Florida Basketball Hour. Season preview time. I'm Neil Blackman. Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com is going to join me. We will conclude a series of shows previewing the season with listener questions, uh, all the questions you want to know about the upcoming season, everything from what's the team's ceiling, uh, the kind of obvious question to, you know, deep cuts about uh, player comparisons with the NBA and what Florida hopes to do to improve defensively, things of that nature. We'll get into that. We'll talk Florida's seven-year NBA draft drought, which we expect to end next season. But what does that say about Florida's development? Uh, is it really something that's conclusive uh, or not? Eric's going to give you a pretty good take on that, I think. And then we will preview Florida's season opener against the UMass Lowell Riverhawks, uh, a team that is out of the America East Conference. And uh, it's not a bad team. So we'll get into all of it. I uh, hope you guys enjoy the show. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South with Eric Fawcett at GatorCountry.com. It's our season preview show. Technically, we've we've had a couple of these, but... But I guess we'll call this one the, the official season preview, Eric. Uh, I mean, I think we've had a lot of season preview ones, man. It feels like it's been a long off season, which is actually pretty funny because in the the scheme of things, this off season was only you know two or three weeks longer than a, than a normal one, depending on what you uh, how far you you know, felt the Gators would go in the uh, postseason play last year. Uh, but really, you know, it wasn't like it was that much longer than a normal off season. But of course, for all the reasons involved, it it felt like a long one. But it looks like we're we're finally here. Little bit of a scare with some of the teams that Florida was uh, is about to be playing, but. Uh, Man, I I said it on the podcast the other day. I'm just I'm taking no games for granted. Anytime Florida plays, I'm going to be so fired up, so excited to to talk about the games here on the podcast. So excited to write about the games. So excited to talk with people on Twitter. Uh, yeah, just I I I would just uh, implore all of you to take no games for granted this year. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and um, you know, obviously, uh, we just saw with uh, some some COVID positives. Um, with uh, UMass Lowell, Florida's uh, season opening game. You know, it looks like they're going to be all clear and, and they'll be able to play ball. But um, still, I mean, that, that stuff I think is just going to be kind of a regular occurrence this year. And it's something that they're going to have to work around. And it looks like the NCAA at least has been proactive and knows it with the news that they're going to do a a single city NCAA tournament, not a single venue that would not be possible with that many teams. Um, but, but a single city. I, I think it's a great decision. And I would have loved if they would have done one venue. Like I know this is probably not the safest way of doing it, but if it was just full AAU style with like eight gyms and like, like Omar Payne swats one over the sideline into someone else's court and they've got to blow the play dead. Like, I think, I think it'd be amazing, but for obvious reasons, um, that's not the case. And they'll do multiple venues, but uh, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, obviously I, I really do think it's the wisest choice, but there's also a part of me that just uh, loves the idea just from a standpoint of like, it, it just makes me feel like the, the tournament is just going to feel that much more. Uh, I don't know the intensity with everyone in the same city. It just, I, I 
I don't know, maybe it's all contrived in my mind, but there's something so cool about a tournament that big all in all in one city. And uh, for, for just so many reasons, I, I think it was the right call. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I, I think it's great. You know, I love the idea of, of, um, so, I mean, I'm with you as fun as it is to like joke about the, the like AAU style NCAA tournament. Um, you know, obviously TV rules everything. So that makes it almost impossible, but I love the idea of, of NCAA tournament games at Hinkle. I mean, like, that's amazing. Yeah, where does that venue rank among uh, makes among some of the best? And I think if you were to rank some of the best uh, the best venues in in college basketball, there's gonna be uh, there's gonna be a lot in that area. So what they want to uh, what they want to pick from? I mean, there's even some iconic high schools, which I, I know a couple Indiana basketball people were were tweeting about how there's some pretty iconic ba- uh, high schools, but some of them only have an 84 foot court. I also think it'd be hilarious if they put like the 116 game on an 84 foot court or like the play in game. Um, uh, I, I shouldn't joke about, uh, you know, we obviously don't want to turn this into a novelty, but uh, it would be cool if they found a way to use some of those, you know, iconic high schools, even if they could get a regulation court in there, it's not like you have to worry about um, fans or, or anything like that. So uh, there's some opportunities for it to be a really cool homage to like one of the great college basketball or, and just great basketball uh, cities. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be fantastic. And, and I don't, you know, who knows what the fan situation will be like. Obviously, if the pandemic doesn't get more under control, the um, fan situation might be pretty much nobody. But um, it still will be neat to see some of these iconic venues hosting NCAA tournament games. Last night, um, we saw the, the NBA draft, which traditionally is in an iconic venue. Um, obviously, you know, kind of different circumstances, at least to some extent, uh, with, with some of the interviews with coaches, I think, uh, I, I tweeted out that Bruce Pearl was doing his interview in front of a Wawa, uh, gas station. It turned out to be an Ingalls grocery store, but I like, wasn't very far off, um, that, that he was in fact in a parking lot. <laughs> um, and, and just other things like that, but, but the draft, which I know you did a lot of work to cover the draft, Eric, um, another year with no Florida Gators draft picks, obviously, uh, really weren't many options on that front. Kerry Blackshear pretty much being the only potential draft pick. And, and I don't think anybody thought Kerry was going to get drafted. Um, well, I guess I shouldn't say that given Given some thoughts you have on it, but no basketball people felt Kerry Blackshear was getting back last night. Um, you know, what are your your kind of thoughts on the extended route for Florida? Well, first, I, I have to talk about Kerry Black Kerry Blackshear and the takes that were flying on Twitter last night. Uh, man, I love the draft. It is one of my favorite days of the year. And some of my joy was taken away from some really just stupid takes on Twitter. And uh, it was related to Kerry Blackshear and him not getting drafted. Look, I have had my problems with this coaching staff and I have went at them with um, usually statistically backed cases when I've had a problem with them. And that's how we kind of roll on this podcast. Uh, if we have a problem with the coaching staff and or something they do, uh, we're, we're quick to point it out. But the people that are saying, oh, Mike White turned Kerry Blackshear from a first round pick to undrafted is just objectively false. It is completely <laughs> untrue. 
So for example, the summer before he went to Florida, where he was testing the NBA draft waters, uh, here, here are some facts for people who think that Kerry Blackshear was going to be a first round pick before he came to Florida. So the, uh, the NBA combine invites 90 players to, to go to the combine. That often doesn't count a lot of the top European players. So they pick the 90 best players that don't count a lot of the, a lot of European players. So really there could be like 110 that they're kind of looking at. Uh, Kerry Blackshear was not in that group of the 90 players, not counting the best European players. So, so not in the top 110, then the, the players that are not invited to the NBA draft combine, there is a G league draft combine. They invite 40 players. Kerry Blackshear was not in that group that they invited. So the NBA executives that really want a best the best look at all available talent that they might be interested in drafting, Kerry Blackshear was not in the top 150 for a draft that has 60 slots. Kerry Blackshear was not in the top 150. So oh. these people saying that Kerry Blackshear was going to be a first round pick and then he came to Florida and then was suddenly not a first round pick because of how he played or some how how Mike White handled him is just is just objectively untrue. It's just you cannot make an argument that he was going to be a first round pick, and really you can't make an argument that he was going to be drafted at all. There there's no evidence whether it's central scouting, whether it's the draft invite or the combine invites. There there's even if you want to look at experts mock draft mock drafts, which for which isn't the best way of looking at it, but would be more more evidence. Uh, I, I just yeah I, I just was there there are reasons that you can you know, come at the Florida's coaching staff and, and you can be critical. Uh, Mike White's handling of, of Kerry Blackshear is not one of them. And then uh, the response might be, oh, well, he should, you know, even though he wasn't anywhere near the NBA draft, Mike White should have taken him and made him into a draft pick. Kerry Blackshear had four years in college and was nowhere near getting drafted, as we have previously established. The thought that Mike White was going to make him into a draft prospect and a first round draft pick after he was nowhere near that mix year before that just doesn't happen. So, and I just, I'm embarrassed to admit this. I spent the time to look at the past five years of drafts and said, Hey, was there any player that played four <laughs> years or was in college for four years was nowhere near draft boards. And then in their fifth year of college basketball as a graduate transfer made some grand turn to NBA draft status. Uh, I could not find it that did not exist in the last five years. And at that point I was like, man, I am absolutely wasting my time. I should be working on an article for Gator country or getting ready for this podcast or something. There's just, I, I, I owe the people who consume my content more with my time than investigating this stupid tale. So anyways, I was just really fired up at these, these, uh, these Mike white, Carrie Blackshear takes. I just thought they were foolish and objectively wrong. And I don't even remember your initial question for me. Well, I mean, it was just, you know, because, well, let me put it this way. Uh, William Norris listened to the show a long time. And we're going to do listener questions anyway. And and William, you know, kind of posed the question, what do you guys think about, you know, the draft drought? And, and do you think that that is related to this sort of narrative around Mike White that they don't develop players? Um. And so, you know, let's just start with that basic question. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And, and, and one thing to just kind of consider is that, I mean, as it relates to 
as it relates to NBA draft and college basketball, like there's not always a lot of correlation. Like let's look at uh, like a perfect example is, is Arizona who had three players drafted last night. Uh, a couple of them pretty high. I mean, uh, they were not relevant whatsoever in college basketball last year, but they had, they had three draft picks. Uh, Vanderbilt, they were they haven't been relevant in the SEC for a long time. They've had three draft picks in the last two years. Uh, Washington, uh, they had two first round picks. I think Jaden McDaniels ended up going with Isaiah Stewart, uh, and they've had they've had a few draft picks the last couple of years, and they have not been relevant in college basketball. So, I don't think that I, I just think when you're talking about how college basketball programs perform uh, using NBA draft history is or or you know success in the nba draft i i just don't think that's a fair way to evaluate it and if florida had the seasons that that they just had like let's say florida had the season that they just had and Deontay johnson and scotty lewis and trey mann all decided to go to the draft and they got drafted you know 25th 37th and 54th or something like that which is like what arizona is has had in the last couple of years uh would anyone really feel better about florida's success uh no and i might suggest like like arizona fans right now are like this is ridiculous we had three draft picks but like our trash and that's i saw some mission or at michigan saw some uh some washington fans thinking the same thing and and saying like man we've had multiple first round picks over the last couple years and we're not even you know haven't been particularly relevant in one of the worst high major leagues in basketball so man i i don't think i would trade college basketball success for NBA draft success. That's like a Kentucky thing to do. And that's just not what I think is, is good for the university of Florida. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, you've got to look too. there's, there's NBA scouts are evaluating these players in high school before they come to college. And they've kind of got their, their eye on players that they think are going to be NBA talents. And Florida it's it's not like Florida has had those guys and, and really squandered it. I, I mean, I even remember there was a couple of people who gave me a, a bit of a heads up about Scotty Lewis and said, like, we don't think he's an NBA player. Like I know some people have him rated that high, but, but we don't. And they're now looking pretty brilliant. A couple of them also told me that they thought Trey Mann was going to be one and done. And I was alongside, uh, I was alongside that kind of train of thought. So, you know, they weren't totally right, but uh, but again, it's it's not like he was like a it's not like Scotty Lewis was like this certain one and done player. There was a lot of people that were skeptical about it. So so again, I I, I don't see a bunch of players that were like on mock drafts on draft boards um, getting NBA combine invites and then and then you know suddenly come to Florida and then just completely fall off the face face of the earth. Like that that hasn't really happened. So would I like to see some more players drafted? Yeah, definitely. And I think if Florida was putting a better product on the court, you'd see more players getting drafted. But uh yeah, I don't I don't look at that, you know, drought and and I'm not awfully concerned, to be honest. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I think it's uh I think there's another way to look at it is that players that White has coached have advanced themselves into the NBA as undrafted free agents, uh, which you could make an argument is kind of proof that there are certain players that do develop at Florida. <laughs> right? Like, uh, you know, I think everybody that listens would agree that Chris Chioza developed um, under Mike White and his staff, which they had a great reputation for developing guards at uh, Louisiana Tech, and I think they've developed guards at Florida. Uh, you know, I know that people were critical of Kayvon Allen, and and you and I talked about a lot of the ways that he developed on re- various podcasts. 
Uh, and, and, you know, did his offensive game develop? Not as much as I think we all would have liked. Uh, how much of that was the staff's fault? I don't know. I mean, there were times his senior year where it was pretty clear that he wasn't necessarily doing things he was coached to do. Um, and I think that he kind of was quick to acknowledge that. Uh, but, you know, that, that doesn't mean that the staff failed to develop him necessarily. Um, but, but other players, Devin Robinson certainly developed at Florida and, and, you know, but for some silly decisions probably sticks to an NBA roster, but you, you often don't get a second chance when you're at the end of an NBA bench. Uh, maybe Devin will, you know, I mean, he hasn't been relegated to, to the European wasteland quite, quite yet. I shouldn't call it that, but, <laughs> um, and then, you know, Dorian Finney Smith, uh, played for Mike White. So, you know, I think you kind of get into the, this discussion about it and, and you have to be fair to kind of both, uh, sides. Yeah. I think you can even look at a player like, uh, like Michael Frazier, who I don't think had a lot of, uh, you know, coming out of college, he didn't have, he didn't have a lot of interest and then um and then uh you know suddenly he goes to the g league and, and plays a lot better i mean there, there's just also that you're just the college game and the nba game and the g league game is 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 just really different in in a lot of ways at times and uh, again if i'm mike white and and if i actually let's back it up if i'm scott strickland i'm saying i don't really care necessarily if you're getting guys ready for the nba game or the g right. game you're we need you to win games at florida and uh you know like there's been some really good gonzaga teams and some really good virginia teams recently that um haven't had a lot of nba talent and i don't think anyone's like well uh oh shoot we you know we don't have nba all-stars like they're they're counting their wins in college and counting their their championships so so again if, if florida doesn't become this you know NBA machine that's that's all right with me as long as they're they're performing if we had a bunch of teams if we had a bunch of like you know Patrick Young Scotty Wilbekin Casey Prather uh you know players like that that don't end up uh that don't end up going to the NBA but uh but being awesome in college and then going on to to Europe and overseas and having great careers that's that's that, that would be awesome I'm um I I just don't think that I, I think that the NBA game and the, the college game are just so different that uh, yeah you 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 don't you can't you can't just look at them synonymously and yeah I would just much rather have team success than NBA success. Yeah, and the, and the last thing I'll say is that another player that Florida has clearly developed is Keontae Johnson, and you know barring something terrible, he's going to be a guy that breaks the streak next year. Oh well. Yeah, Keontae Johnson too. It's hard to imagine him really doing anything that would, you know, <laughs> that would hurt his 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 stock. I mean, that's what's kind of interesting about him is he's been so consistent through these two years that hey, maybe you know, I don't even want to speak this evil into the the universe that that maybe he could have a, a disappointing like like Matt. I would have never you know totally thought that Jalen Hudson would drop off in the way he did. I think Keontae Johnson was better than Jalen Hudson before that and had a more consistent style of game. But I mean, I guess it could happen to anyone. But yeah, this this will be an interesting draft. Upcoming because uh, yeah I think Keontae Johnson's going to be drafted I think Scotty Lewis is going to have a great chance and I think Trey Mann could have a great chance so uh, we'll see what happens if there's you know three guys called next year yeah I mean then then what do you think but but I like your point and and I think your tweet last night kind of shows how uh, 
about Vanderbilt, you know, illustrates that difference. Um, as many draft picks the last two seasons as as conference wins. <laughs> I mean, it's a tough world out there, man. And uh, you know, just because does that make Bryce Drew uh, and, and Jerry Stackhouse better developers of talent than than Mike White? You know, because you know Aaron Neesmith got taken in the lottery, uh, or because. Um, you know, Saban Lee, I thought went um, much earlier than I thought he would go <laughs> to to Detroit. Um, yeah, I guess they really like Saban Lee. He's he's really athletic. Um, you know, so does that mean that Jerry Stackhouse and Bryce Drew develop players better? You know, I don't know. Um, that that's for people to decide. But I don't think. I think it, that another argument you could make is that Florida's won a lot of games under Mike White, and and maybe they've done it without, you know, NBA caliber talent, which kind of is the job of these coaches. And speaks to your point about uh, Scott Strickland, um, I think as well. Like if he's evaluating this, he might not care too much about a seven-year drought. Um, so we wanted. To, to just address that at the top of the show, we will move on uh, to Florida and and the Gators still trying to figure out who they're going to be defensively. And, and Eric, you had a very interesting piece uh, at Gator Country where you talked about all the length they have in the front court and how Omar Payne could potentially be a centerpiece to defensive improvement. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to look at uh, Florida's rim protection numbers under Mike White, as well as their overall defensive efficiency numbers. And they really correlated perfectly. If if Florida was able to protect the rim well, uh, they were, uh, you know, they were able to defend well. And obviously last season, they really lacked the rim protection and they didn't defend well. And I don't think it's as simple as that's, you know, I don't think that's the only thing that went wrong for Florida, obviously. Uh, but I, I think that the way Florida plays defense, rim protection is going to be a lot more important than it is for a lot of other teams' styles of defense. Uh, I mean, if you hear Mike White or if you hear any of his assistants talking, which, uh, you know, like Darius Nichols did, did a few podcasts, uh, various basketball coaching podcasts over the offseason, which is which is great. Uh, he really talked at length about how Florida's defense is, is really all about taking away three-point attempts. Uh, which is a really analytically savvy way of playing defense. But the thing is, if you're all about taking away three-point attempts, uh, that means you're going to overclose out at times and you're going to run people off the line. And that puts pressure on the backside of your defense. And uh, that's where I think that that there was you know, a, a real disconnect with Florida's defense where it was, okay, we're going to run guys off the line. We're going to siphon them towards the middle of the floor. Uh, but the guy meeting them there wasn't often a great rim protector. And that's kind of where, where things broke down a lot. So I think the obvious answer is is Omar Payne, who had great rim protection numbers, but uh, that could also be Colin Castleton, who also has uh, really good numbers as a rim protector. Uh, and man, I mean, Florida put out their team pictures the other day, and Colin Castleton is like so much taller than everyone and has a ridiculous yeah. wingspan. And uh, and yeah, and I mean, you watch the film, he, he moves well, has good anticipation, and he has good length. So I think he could be a really good shot blocker. So uh, for those of us, which is, you know, should be all of us wondering how is Florida going to defend better? I think you do look at, at um, the fact that they're uh, probably going to have 40 minutes of, you know, at either average to above average rim protection um, versus last year when it was maybe 30 to 32 minutes of below average rim protection. And there's a place right there where I think Florida is going to be a lot better defensively. 
Yeah, and I would I would encourage people to check out the articles. I always am promoting Eric's articles, but I think um, good video that he tweeted out embedded in the article. But if you just want to go to his feed uh, at eFaucet7, you can check it out from November 8th, uh, where he has some good video of of pain and how maybe, you know, Omar could have a bigger role uh, helping Florida hedge pick and rolls, uh, you know, and, and kind of playing the role that, that Kavarius Hayes played to the tune of my defensive player of the year in the SEC, at least. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'll just never let that go. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it wasn't just Kavarius Hayes. I mean, I think uh, in the article you mentioned the success of, of Florida with Johnny Bunu patrolling the paint, which should encourage people on on the Jason Jatobo front. Like he does things a little differently than Omar Payne, but I think that we saw last year he can be effective because he's kind of a space eater. Uh, and and that's good too. Um, you know, but but Florida has a lot of versatility in the front court, which is very nice. Uh, they also add help at wings with Anthony Derugi and and our guy Niles Lane. Uh, I think can upgrade things in terms of how they want to defend guards, which, you know, we, I mentioned Kayvon Allen earlier in the show and, and uh, one thing Kayvon Allen really did develop into was an elite defender. Yeah. Kayvon Allen was really good. And, and that's going to be uh, it's going to be really interesting to see Florida now that they do have a little bit more length in the backcourt, especially if you see more Trey man minutes at, at point guard. Uh, right. If you see, if you see more, you know, like Niles lane or, or Samson Rusensev playing the two or, or Scotty Luce playing the two, and you've got more, you know, six, five out there versus uh, the last couple of years when it's been, you know, Noah Locke and, and Kayvon Allen six, three, right. six, two ish. Um, Lock definitely longer than Kayvon Allen, I I think, but uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that'll be that'll be really interesting, and uh, of course, in uh, the switch heavy modern basketballs, the switch heavy what Mike White wants to do, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see if they try to uh, if they try to keep some guys like like your Niles Lanes, like your Scotty Lewis's, uh, some of your more elite perimeter defenders. If if you try to keep them maybe glued to you know explosive perimeter talents a little bit more, or if they you know look at the look at the length across the board and. And, you know, keep switching and switch off ball actions. It's going to be really interesting because, man, like we can talk scheme all we want in terms of uh, gap control and help side and meeting guys at the rim. But, man, if you can play really good individual one on one defense and keep yourself out of rotation, uh, that that's better than any complex defensive scheme. Like if guys can play one on one, keep their feet in front of ball handlers, uh, man, that makes any defense look good, no matter what you do. So, uh, I, and especially with so many returners, I mean, it's not often that players as they get older, get worse at perimeter defense. They usually get better. If nothing else, they, you know, get slightly better usually. So yeah, uh, if yeah, Florida can just be better individual defenders on the ball, that'll be huge too. No, I think it really will. And, and, and I do expect Florida to, to, to be much better defensively this season, which is why, um, I'm a little more bullish on the Gators even now than I was a month ago when we when we started kind of previewing the team and in sort of a series of podcasts instead of just doing like a – if Eric and I tried to do one season preview show, it would have been like three hours long and it would have been terrible for all of you because <laughs> you <laughs> playing us at high speed would not have worked. You would have just been like, this is interminably long. Um, but But I think – I have kind of grown to be a little more bullish on the team um, than I was where I was kind of on the fence about, 
if they were a second weekend type team. I still need to see the point guards, but I'm 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 growing encouraged by what I've heard coming out of practice, what I've heard from people around the program, alumni of the program who who have talked to the staff. Um, and the biggest reason why is that I keep hearing, man, they got a chance to be really good defensively. That could be really interesting. I mean, going back to our podcast when we were talking about uh, where we think Florida might finish offensively and and defensively, and even the Ken Palm adjusted numbers, uh, we both thought that they were going to be better offensively than defensively. Yeah. And man, if this team does end up being better defensively than than offensively, that's uh, uh, man, that's uh, that that's going to be a pleasant surprise. If Florida can make a big leap from where they were last year defensively, uh, that's that's huge. And uh, again, like you look at Florida last year, where they ended twenty uh, seventh, I believe, um, in uh, in offense. Uh, yeah. um, which uh, which I know, yeah, Mike White has said a couple times in in press conferences that Florida was a top twenty five team in in Ken Palm offense. I feel like I was like Daniel Dale fact checking and being like, well, no, that's not true. He also. <laughs> He also kept saying that Florida was the youngest team in college basketball, and that wasn't true. There was two teams that were younger, but or high major teams that were younger. But anyway, anyways, yeah. a slider. But um, boy, <laughs> anyways, what I'm getting at was uh, if Florida is 27th offensively, but our top 15 defensively, like that's in the mix for a Final Four team. Just just yeah. looking at right. Final Four teams, that's uh, it's if you get top 15 defense and you're top 25 ish offensively, that that's good enough. So man, if Florida really does get to that that point, um, first of all, yeah, the Kerry Blackshear slander on on Twitter will be awful but uh you know that will be something uh but it will be exciting if florida gets that much better defensively from a 61st strength performance last year yeah and look i mean i think another thing that's important is i i I said i was still interested in point guards i'm also still you know and it's funny because we talk about rim protectors but it's different than rebounders at least for me eric maybe this is something you disagree with but you know i still do wonder about this team rebounding too um you know i i i need to see somebody other than Keontae Johnson be a consistently outstanding rebounder. Um, and for all the Kerry Blacks, your takes that you see, and I, I spell takes here, T-A-E-K-S, um, you know, I think I think you got to remember that it's a guy that, that was 16 points and eight every time out. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, yeah, Kerry Blackshear really was uh, – I think he was really what everyone probably would have expected – from him. Uh, and I know some people thought that he would be again, take a huge leap, but when you're dealing with players that have been caught co- in college for four years, you're probably not getting a huge bump. And, uh, he was a consistent performer when he's on the court. And, uh, it is interesting. I mean, when you look at Omar Payne and, and Jason Jatobo's, uh, defensive rebounding numbers, uh, not great from a percentage standpoint. And that is something that's concerning for a team that a Florida team that has not been great defensively rebounding the ball. And, it is interesting because uh, one of the first analytics things I ever did, like seven or eight years ago, was talking about the difference between rim protection and uh, and uh, and rebounding. Because there's a lot of players who had great defensive in the NBA that had great defensive rebounding numbers. I believe I joked about it as the Carlos Boozer quotient. Um, for those of you who remember him playing, uh, David Lee was another player actually who was uh, a fantastic rebounder who was a terrible, terrible rim protector. 
And I do think that there's correlation between guys that do hunt the hunt the basketball a little bit when it comes to um, pursuing it for blocks and guys that stay on their feet and stay in rebounding position a little bit. And I do think sometimes when you chase blocks and you go for that kind of rim protection, you take yourself out of defensive rebounding position. Um, something I will say um, from a analytics standpoint for whatever that's worth uh, rebounding the ball. Castleton unquestionably the best. Um, obviously, we're talking, you know, it's tough to say here, you know, returners at Florida versus Castleton at Michigan. But man, uh, Castleton playing in the Big Ten against uh, uh, against a lot of really good big men in a league that play pretty much everyone plays big. He had really good defensive rebounding numbers. So uh, I can't, I'm just really looking forward to seeing him play and seeing what he's like. But uh, it, it will be interesting if it gets to the point of. Uh, if Florida just struggles to rebound the ball and, and the center position becomes, hey, who do we think can secure the defensive glass? Uh, that'd be really interesting because, yeah, Colin Castleton, I, th- I think he's a really good shot blocker. I don't think he's Omar Payne caliber because Omar Payne was an incredible shot blocker last year. Uh, but if, uh, you know, if Castleton is 80% as a shot blocker as good as, as Omar Payne, but he's, you know, a 30% better defensive rebounder, well, you know, maybe that's the guy who gets more minutes. But it'll be an interesting race to watch. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think all of that is uh, is pretty interesting. John Fulkerson, another guy that, you know, like 0.7 blocks a game is not that bad uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But when you're when you're grabbing like 6.9 rebounds a game and you're under a block per game, you're probably not quite as balanced as as you know you might normally want to see. Maybe. Uh, it, it certainly a, a little more balanced from a guy like Eve Pond, right? Um, <laughs> in terms of like guys that can do both, uh, and and Florida is going to need some of that. You know, Castleton doesn't have to go get a ton of blocks, but it'd be great if if he attacked the glass and and helped Florida control you know the game with rebounds. I mean, I still look at the Kentucky game and how many late second chance rebounds that Kentucky got. In, in Florida, what ultimately ended up being the, what the final game of the season, right? Um, you know, even with the Blackshear injury with Florida way ahead, if Florida just rebounds the ball better down the stretch, they win. Um, and that's the kind of stuff, you know, you want to avoid. And and that was Florida without Blackshear on the floor, without their best rebounder on the roster. So Florida has to replicate that production. I think one of the bigger concerns I have about the team, and maybe that's a good segue, Eric, Two listener questions. We'll start with Shane Brown. Brownie Batter wants to know what's the ceiling for this team realistically? Let's just go right to the cut to the chase. Has Michael <laughs> finally put together a team that can replicate 27 postseason success? Let me start real quick because I'm going to kick this to you. I want to answer the last of the three great questions from Shane. And people are going to hate this answer, which is why, you know, I'm just teeing you up to be beloved by all our listeners. Winning in March is hard. (laughs) And like the question I have is, so if Florida goes and wins the league or finishes second in the league and gets to the conference tournament final, or plays in the conference tournament semis and finishes second in the league and only loses a couple games in the regular season. And then somebody that attacks closeouts really well takes advantage of Florida's aggressive defense and beats them by three in the second round. What do we think of that kind of season? Um, You know, is that disappointing? I think 
in a world where March matters so much and that's our sport, probably so. I don't know if that's necessarily fair. But I think the answer for me to Shane's question is, yes, the team is certainly capable of replicating that type of success. Eric? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, again, you look at the recipe for winning in college basketball and the the 2010s to now or, you know, this 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 past decade is you have guys that are like fringy NBA talent that decides to come back. Uh, and, uh, and then you've got, you, you bring in a couple, you know, players through the transfer wire that you think are going to be good. And, and you stay old that way. And again, Florida has three guys who realistically you could have, you know, gone and gotten some form of, of NBA deal. And, you know, uh, Trey Mann would have ended up like an exhibit 10 or something, which is like the lowest, the lowest caliber contract they can give like a non-guaranteed cap invite, yeah. but, but he would have. And, uh, you, you bring those guys back, you bring in two transfers you think can play, I think. Generally, everyone, some might be higher on them than others. I'm pretty high on them, but I think everyone can agree that they're going to be, if nothing else, you know, capable SEC players. And then you've got a couple freshmen you think could play too. I mean, that is the recipe for teams being good in, in college basketball. It's why analytics like Bart Torvik, who I think is, uh, I, I think Bart Torvik's the most accurate. I, I know that a couple of years ago, a couple of like Vegas betters um, established, looked, looked at all the, uh, looked at all these popular things like Ken Palm and Sagarin and to find which one was like the most accurate predictive analytics. And it was Bart Torvik. Uh, they have Florida as the seventh best team going into the season. I think that that speaks to how good this team can be when this, uh, you know, this predictive metric has as Florida as the seventh best team in college basketball. So I think elite eight, I think final four is absolutely the ceiling. There's no question. Yeah. I mean, they're, they, they have a chance to be very good. Uh, CLT Gator is asking a very important question. Um, which is what is your favorite Turkey day side dish and why is it stuffing? Um, and he <laughs> also that he understands Eric may not celebrate American Thanksgiving, but his input is greatly appreciated. Well, that's, that's appreciated. Yes. Canadian Thanksgiving back in October. Uh, but you know, I definitely observed the, uh, the football and college basketball watching a portion of the tradition of American Thanksgiving, but Hey, I, I feel like I'm in a contentious mood since I started off on the, the whole black year draft thing earlier. But I mean, the thing is with the thing is with Turkey or the thing about Thanksgiving dinner is that Turkey is overrated and Turkey is trash. So that's, that's my take. And for that reason, sides are sides are huge. Sides are sides are really everything with the Thanksgiving dinner. So uh, I definitely, and, and no one can really debate the Turkey thing. I mean, Hey, I know the comments might come, but the market has shown that Turkey is, is not a great food. If Turkey were good, it would be served at other, other than holidays. There would be, there would be Turkey restaurants everywhere where you could go get Turkey dinner every day. There's, there's a reason that you can go get a burger or pizza anywhere. It's because the market has decided those foods are worth serving and people want to buy them. Turkey simply hasn't established itself that way. It is, uh, it, it belongs in the NIT. It, it, it does not put a resume together uh, worthy of the, uh, of, of making the big dance. So, so Turkey, Turkey is low tier, but the sides, there are some great sides. Stuffing is definitely up there. There's no question. Um, I'm a big fan of sweet potato casserole, anything sweet. Oh, potato. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I, and I don't know, Neil. You'll have to be the judge of this if this is an eligible side. I know it is getting a lot more popular nowadays. I don't know if it can be considered um, a classical Thanksgiving side, or maybe it's a, it's a little bit more of a modern thing. But I have a a deep, deep love of Brussels sprouts, and seeing roasted Brussels sprouts at the table at at my Thanksgiving, at people's Thanksgiving, I think that is the the best of of vegetable sides. So, um, I don't, if we can count Brussels sprouts, that would be that would be my pick. 
Oh, I think Brussels sprouts get a little garlic on them. I mean, I think I think you're doing you're doing work there. I, I'm I'm with you 100. Uh, you know, I don't know if I share your like disdain for turkey, but maybe last year I did I did a, a turducken. Wow. You know, I always wanted to do turducken ever since I was like a teenager, and John Madden had one on on Thanksgiving football, and he did like a diagram, and he had a circle, and he he was like, "You got your turkey here." <laughs> and you chicken here, it's turducking. And it's all I ever that was a terrible Madden. I apologize to everyone. But but I I uh I did a smoke I did a smoke turducken last year on the big green egg. And I think the duck and the chicken made up for the fact that like turkey's bland and you like need to mix your turkey with all your other stuff. Like to me, like turkey's not trash, but it's like very average. Yeah, sorry, tr- trash was definitely hot takey. It, it is, it is very average. But you know what? The, yeah, the, right. The, the the faucet at the faucet household for Canadian Thanksgiving and and Christmas. I mean, this is sacrilege, but we're doing a leg of lamb, or we're doing we're doing okay. mussels. That's you know, like we're going off the board here. We're getting into the deep sleepers of of good food, and and uh, yeah, unfortunately, turkey, you know, just doesn't doesn't often make it to the table. So uh, I'm glad other people can enjoy it. But yeah, it's uh, turkey. It's just I I could take it or leave it. I mean, we could do a whole show on Thanksgiving sides, and like <laughs> I'd be fine with that because it's our show. Um, I do think we'll record though before the Virginia game, so um, you know everybody get ready for that. I, I, look, I like stuffing. You do a little bread, get a little celery in there. You can put apples and like chestnuts in it if you want. Um, you know, if you want to get real fancy with it, um, that's that's great. I don't think you have to put it in the bird, but but you can if you want. You can do like two different ones where you got the one in the bird and one not. And then anyone in the South knows that you got to have your like Southern mac and cheese that's like mm. almost burlesque. Like that's big. That's big. Yeah, big big thing in Canada would be the stuffing is if it's in the bird and it's got to be called dressing if it's if it's out of the bird. And that's okay. especially especially an East Coast thing. But but. It's 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 gonna work to record that you know before Virginia because Virginia is the turkey of college basketball teams. It's it's low and slow to cook it. It's maybe a little bit bland, but some people love it. Like some people hate Virginia basketball. Some people absolutely love it, and some people some people love turkey. Some people would you know they don't want low and slow and maybe a little bland. They want they want the 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 dark roast Brussels sprouts with a little bit of bacon and balsamic vinegar. So it's uh, yeah. Looking looking forward to recording before that Virginia one. Yeah, no, the Virginia preview is going to be it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, um, moving on, Gator Boss eighty seven. Who are the go to guys besides Keontae? Eric, this is okay. This is actually a really good question because this is the thing. I mean, one of Florida's issues over the last couple of years is that when the game has gotten tight and and they need someone to make a play off the dribble. They haven't really had that guy other than one season of Jalen Hudson. So I I do think that's one concern when you look at this team. Like, like I love Keontae Johnson. We love Keontae Johnson, both you and me, Neil, as well as everyone listening to this. But if Florida needs a bucket, he's not really someone who you're going to say like, hey, use a ball screen or hey, take an isolation at the top or let's use a screen to get you in isolation in a a mismatch or a switch. Uh, Maybe he's brought that element to his game, but. Man, when it gets tight, Florida is going to need someone with some juice who can create some space with the dribble uh, and hit a tough shot. And uh, I, I want to say that's Trey Mann, but 
it's it's unproven. Uh, Tyree Appleby, I want to say it's him, and you know what? He he hit a lot of you know for whatever big games there there was there were to be had at Cleveland State that wasn't very good. He was the one taking those tough shots, so it, it could be him. But man, if you are looking at uh, if if you are looking at uh, you know, a, a, a hole in this team. It, it could be that, that, that kind of guy. And, and I don't know if, it's, if that's exactly what he meant by who are the go-to guys. But when I, when I hear go-to guys, it's like, you know, or, you know, who is when it's 30 seconds left in the game and it's tied or you're down one or two and uh, you need someone to make a play, who's it going to be? And I think it's fair to question that with this team. Yeah. I think it's a great question that he asked. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I like, I kind of feel that we're going to have a show this year where Florida loses a close game uh, and Keontae Johnson does not take the last shot. And you and I are going to have to spend 10 to 15 minutes explaining why that's not ridiculous. <laughs> and, and I mean, it's just because that stuff is inevitable. And part of that is because that's not necessarily Keontae's DNA. Now it doesn't mean that because Keontae is such a fierce competitor, you know, he's going to be in a huddle and want the ball. But, like, I don't know, man. I, Tyree Appleby and Trey Mann are kind of the guys you look to that can create, right? So, hopefully, uh, it, it's, it's one of them. Gator Greg SEC, at Gator Greg SEC, Gator Greg 11 asks, provide a comparative player to Colin Castleton uh, in terms of style of play or productivity. And do you expect to see a lot of, of Colin this year? Oh, comparison. I, I'm so yeah, like you mentioned, Neil, I do uh, NBA draft coverage for NBA Canada and NBA Japan and a couple of other NBA properties. And uh, when it comes to draft coverage, everyone wants player comparisons. So I do yeah. feel pretty, pretty dialed in more than I have ever been to to make a, a player comparison. So I, I'm going to give an NBA one and then I'll give a college one slash NBA. Uh, a player that he does remind me a lot of is Avika Zubac uh, with the uh, with the Clippers. Someone who, if you're an NBA fan, uh, that'll make sense. If you're not, um, I'll get to a to a more recent college one. But uh, the thing uh, with with Zubac is again just uh, a really good positional defender, and that's what I see with with Colin Castleton and and also someone also someone who moves his feet really intelligently. And uh, again, I think when people think of interior defense and they think rim protection, they think jumping through the roof and just like swatting a ball into the rafters. And there's an element where, yeah, you've got to be able to, uh, to go recover and, and meet someone at the, at the summit, like Kavarius Hayes did, uh, or Omar Payne can, but a, a lot of it is, is moving your feet quickly, reading a play and, and getting to the right spot, putting both of your hands up and, and using your body as a wall. And, uh, that's what I really saw from, uh, from Castleton. And it's something I saw from Avika Zubac a lot watching, watching the Clippers. And, uh, for, uh, for, uh, another NBA slot, college comparison uh kind of the uh you know the thinner but uh but definitely long is Jakob Pertl at, at Utah now with the Spurs uh that's another player that uh what Jakob Pertl was doing at Utah was was kind of what I envision I I mean I think he was the Pac-12 defensive player of the year so I don't maybe necessarily expect that from Castleton but uh but yeah someone who had really good hands catching the ball around the rim played a simple but effective offensive game and was a smart positional defender and uh I see that a little bit with with Castleton obviously those players are both NBA players. And, um, I'm not saying that Castleton is going to be that, but, but there's some players that, you know, that's, I kind of see shades of that in, in Castleton. Yeah, no, I, I could, uh, I could definitely, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great comparison. An interesting one. Um, he had another question and, and we don't, we answer them all. So if you ask two, we're just going to answer, 
Um, but what, what do you see Quez Glover's role being this season? Um, I think it's instant offense. Like, I think, you know, Quez is definitely a guy who can find creative ways to score. And, like, I felt like if he had a strength last year, it's that he was fearless. And, and you know, he is not afraid. Like, he's not afraid to take a shot. He can create his own shot. He actually had a couple pretty big shots in conference play. I know one of them that both you and I are probably thinking of is – like a fadeaway jumper that he made that he never should have taken, but like <laughs> it took such guts to be 18 and take that shot uh, in the middle of like the comeback against Alabama. Right. And, and I think um, so, so for me, you know, I do think quest plays and, and I think it's, it's pretty similar. It's instant offense. I'd like to see him shoot better because I think he's a better shooter than he shot last year. He was a hell of a shooter in, in high school, especially off the dribble, off pick and rolls. His pull-up game was incredible, and we obviously didn't see that in Florida in his freshman season. But uh, the the thing is, if you were to look at his kind of analytics profile, you would, and, and like if I were to give it to, to someone blind and they, they didn't know the player, uh, they would think this is like an instant offense shooting guard. They would not think he was a point guard by any stretch of the imagination. So I kind of feel that way about Quez Glover. Like, I don't think he's a point guard. And I know some people are going to look at his height and say, oh, well, like, well, he's a point guard. And yeah, I just, I don't know if that that's going to be him. And here, I might have a little bit of bias. I mean, you know, I coach high school basketball. I had a coach say this to me two years ago. He's like, he's like, hey, like, um, he made a joke about, he's like, Hey, like, uh, you know, I can, I always know who your point guard is, even if I don't your roster, he's like, because it's, uh, it's always your second shortest player. It's, it's never your shortest player. And I mean, and he was joking because most players just, you know, most teams just line, line guys up one to five, you know, shortest to tallest and the shortest guys are point guard. But, you know, I've always kind of liked taller guards who can see over the defense and create passing angles. And I feel like oftentimes for smaller guards, it is tougher to handle being a primary ball handler and making the right passes that you need them to make. And, Again, if you were to just look at at, at Quez as a freshman, it would be uh, it was anything that had to do with passing the basketball or distributing. He did not excel at, um, and uh, on the contrary, did very poorly at. Uh, yeah, I think that his uh, when you look at what he did effectively, it was you know he actually got to the hoop pretty well and was able to finish pretty well for a smaller player. And when you look at what he did in high school as a shooter, I, I kind of think that yeah, like you you have him out there with with a. Trey Mann or, or a Quez or a, sorry, Trey Mann or Tyree Appleby, but I don't think you want him to be your primary ball handler. I think you want him to be, yeah, someone who uh, you put in scoring positions and you don't look for him to be someone to initiate the offense or, or make reads. I just like, Hey, I don't want to, I don't want to look at his, who he was as a freshman and say like, well, books closed. This is who he is as a player, but man, there was just not a lot to show you that he could be um, as someone who could, initiate offense but he did show some flashes that he could score so I, I i'm in total agreement with you i think he's got to be kind of your your microwave score when he gets in the game and and not someone that mike white says hey gate get us into our offense yep no i totally agree uh zach ward longtime listener zach ward at za warden four what are realistic expectations for scotty lewis this year and what's a good nba comparison for scotty lewis all these nba comp questions we're getting <laughs> I, I swear it's I swear it's draft mode. I think I think everyone's in on uh, <laughs> on comparisons because that's when you look at NBA draft coverage, it's like it's all about the uh, it's all about the comparisons these days. Uh, man, realistic expectations. I like again. I don't want to sound 
like I'm, you know, too down on Scotty Lewis or anything. But again, like there was people who had him, uh, had him as, uh, uh, you know, on the watch list for the best, one of the best shooting guards. And that could totally happen. And uh, I, I just, man, it's, I think that there's a lot of holes to his, to his offensive game right now. And, and I don't really expect him making a huge leap offensively. So I, I don't see him being one of Florida's top scores and, and that's totally okay. He can be super effective, not doing that. He could be super effective as someone who does just really defend and uh, occasionally gets a bucket off a, a catch and shoot three or, uh, or cutting off the ball and, and getting a backdoor lob or something like that. I, I just don't see him as someone who you, the Gators want to have the ball in his hands a lot and, and kind of creating that way so uh for that reason i i'm gonna say you know like i, I guess that like he really has the physical tools that the sky's the limit but i i don't think people should ex- be expecting him to be a star for this team i i don't expect him to be anywhere near an all sec player or, or anything like that so uh yeah I, in terms of in terms of nba comparison that's a, that's a great question i i said i was so dialed in but uh but yeah. now suddenly it's uh suddenly i'm a i'm kind of falling back a little bit but uh i mean i have two can i go oh jump in yeah so i still i still like andre iguodala like i still think that's his ceiling right um because and and i i spoke about last year like if you compare iguodala arizona statistics as a freshman and then his second year in college and you see a little productivity leap and you know I mean Andre was never shooting what Scotty shot as a freshman but everything else kind of matches up um and Andre I mean watch the video Eric pretty thin pretty thin as a freshman I know hard to believe if you look at him now right um but but not not the biggest dude off the wall athleticism, uh, and then just kind of charismatic, the guy that people gravitate towards. I think that's a ceiling. Uh, this is old school as hell, and you know I'm not even going to apologize for it. I know you'll like it. Um, I think like the maybe okay, so he doesn't blossom into like an All NBA defender, All Star type like Iguodala. But uh, what about like Doug Christie, dude? Uh, that's high praise. That's uh, that's that's great. I mean, definitely the build, and and I mean that's something that that because that's my struggle right now is like I'm trying to think of like your your players who play that, and this is kind of why I'm like from an NBA standpoint, not totally sure. Like I start to look at like players that are kind of the wing stoppers, like Scotty Lewis is is branding himself as, and uh, you know I I think like always like a little bit like Josh Josh Akoji from uh from Georgia tech that's now with uh, Minnesota, but it's like, man, I think he's probably 210 pounds or I, you know, I look at those kind of players and they're, they're just so much, you know, physically built, built differently. So uh, kind of role wise, I'll say Josh Akogi, but man, uh, or, you know, even a Dan, Danwell house. I know, uh, you know, people may be a little down on him for his bubble decisions, but, but that kind of, you know, that, that kind of player, but again, both of those guys are a little bit thicker, but kind of play style. That's, that's what I think of him as a guy who will drive in straight lines and, and catch and shoot offensively, but, but play really good defensively yeah i mean look and i said doug christie because you're talking about a guy that that shot about 35 percent from three but played 15 years in the league man because he could he could defend you know his rear end off uh he averaged two steals a game in his career in, in the nba which is pretty good um and and he shot like just well enough and was pretty much automatic at, at the free throw line, about an 85% career three free throw shooter. 
sorry, 83, still pretty good. Um, Scotty, you know, shoots in the 80s at the line. Uh, Doug Christie, 6'5". Like, the last Phoenix Suns roster that I'm looking at right now has him listed at 195. Like, <laughs> maybe, like, soaking wet with rocks in his shoes. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of – I guess that is high praise because that's 15 years in the NBA, right? But I don't know. I mean, it's not like – I don't think Doug was ever – he's making the all-star team, right? Just yeah, like, he, a long-time pro. Yeah, and I think that's what, what Lewis will hope to be. But, uh, yeah, I mean, as I look at, like, the wing stoppers in the NBA, it's a reminder that, man, Scotty Lewis definitely has to bulk up a bit because you do not see guys built like Doug Christie in the uh, in the NBA right now. Yeah, and and that's the thing is like it's dangerous to make a Doug Christie comp because like Doug's career ended in two thousand eight, <laughs> you know, like the dude was drafted by the Sonics. Okay, so <laughs> it's a throwback, uh, but but fun, fun to talk about. Uh, Tanner Lefevre, mover blocker or blocker mover? I can see Tanner's already ready for for Virginia. <laughs> uh- like, like in terms of what phrasing I prefer? Yeah, which one? Oh, it's blocker mover for sure. That just rolls off the tongue so much better. And uh, yeah, it's I don't know. It's just always been blocker mover for me ever since uh, when I first heard of it. And I know some people say mover blocker, but to me, it's always the blocker mover. And um, yeah, I, I, as uh, Neil alluded to, that is something you will uh, very well see uh, Virginia play. That's what they were known for offensively for so long. They've gotten uh, a little bit out of it since the shot clock shortened because they used to just like run this offense over and over and over again. Um, very simply put, it's uh, it's this yeah continuity offense that that uh, uh, there's two blockers and two movers and it's kind of alternating at all times. There's a flex screen or a pin down screen by one blocker for one mover, and then there's a flare screen by the other blocker for the other mover, and you just constantly cycle through these these players pairing off with one each other or with with each other and uh this flare screen and this pin down screen happen uh, over and over and over and over again and that's how you get to be one of the slowest teams in, in college basketball <laughs> um portland is a team is the one nba team that i've watched that uh that will utilize that uh, and they really only run the action once just to initiate things uh the nba game does not have the shot clock to really establish it but uh yeah i appreciate the blocker mover offense offense and yeah to me to me yeah like i said to me it's always just i i just always think blocker mover rolls off the tongue so much better but i'm interested in what you'll say yeah i mean i i think it's blocker mover um as well uh and i think some of the reason that they changed it was like that just personnel base it's what made tony bennett such a good coach i think right like they go to this more like hybrid i mean they still blocker mover concepts in their in their game plans but they went to this more ball string continuity offense when they won the national title and i think part of that was because Tony Bennett really wanted Key Clark on the floor, right? And it's hard to be blocker mover when one of your movers isn't somebody that shoots. Mm. And then, you know, the other thing is, like, DeAndre Hunter, when he was on the floor, you didn't want to limit him to blocking. So all of a sudden you had, like, Hunter rolling to the rim, and it just made sense. So, So they, you know, instead of just making tweaks to blocker mover, though, what made it so interesting was they really did almost switch to ball screen continuity. And and I don't think anybody that they played down the stretch of the season other than Duke was really ready for that. And, um, you know, I saw some yeah, – we both like Jordan Sperber, I know. 
and and I saw some stats from Jordan Sperber. You can tell I'm getting uh, ready for the Virginia pod, Eric. And <laughs> you know they used ball screen continuity 23 times in the first half of their Elite Eight game. And uh, guess how many times they used a blocker mover set? In this, <laughs> oh, I'm going to say they went away from it. So Six. 23. Okay. <laughs> yes. Six. 29 possessions. So, you know, they, they are known for it. It will be interesting to see, you know, they still have Key Clark, so they're still not necessarily going with, with the uh, – they're still going to have one of their shooters that's that's a mover that's not really a shooter. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Um, but but now their bigs are going to be different. So, you know, does that mean that they go back to these blocker mover concepts? Or are they going to run primarily ball screen continuity? And if they do run ball screen continuity, it's kind of cool that Florida's playing UMass Lowell because guess who the number one team in ball screen continuity possessions in the NCAA was last year? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, well, I mean, who else could it be but uh, but UMass Lowell? Nope, they were second. Oh, ah. <laughs> it was Marshall. But, <laughs> but, but uh, Pat Ducat at UMass Lowell was second. That was fun, though. Um, so, yeah, so Florida's going to get a, a, lot, a taste of that. Uh, when they head up to the land of the Mohegan Sun. Last listener question, also from Tanner Lefebvre. How much more can you envision Keontae Johnson being used in isolation offense, especially in the middle of the post, or in pick and rolls? I know Eric is uh, high on Appleby because of the need for uh, shot creation on offense, but he thinks Florida could be fine with man and KJ. Yeah, I mean, there were so few possessions that that they've used Keontae Johnson as a pick and roll ball handler. So it's kind of just like an incomplete. Um, I want to say I, I looked at this out of curiosity. Um, I think it was around 30 in his career, um, which is obviously not a lot through two seasons. Uh, and I don't think there was any like noticeable like trends of it going particularly well or, or poorly. Uh, I, I, I still look at the way that like Tennessee used um, Grant Williams at Admiral Schofield and got them like one-on-one sp- get, get them the ball, kind of the free throw line and let them go one-on-one against uh, players that they were usually quicker than and could still finish around. And I just think like Keontae Johnson could just murder people on those plays because yeah. if he got, if he gets the ball at, uh, at the, around the free throw line and he's got a bigger format on him. And at, from that point, Johnson has a, almost certainly has a quicker first step than anyone who's going to guard him. And he's one dribble away from the hoop. I just think he could just, yeah, I think he could just murder on that play. And I think it would be awesome. So I I'd like to see that a little bit more in terms of him, like standing 30 feet from the hoop and like calling for a ball screen, maybe hitting a switch off it. And then like attacking one-on-one. I just, I don't, I don't know how much I really see that as part of his game and again i think florida is so much going to you know if if we're buying into what they're saying and it's going to be we need to play quicker and we need to move the ball isolation and and you know spreading out ball screen for your best player like that um that does not coincide with with playing quicker so i I don't really see that being what florida does but man if keontae johnson is just awesome they're going to be trying different things to get him the ball and uh trying to use him as a screen and roll ball handler i i'd be really interested to see what it's like because again the the jury's kind of out on that one the sample's just not there right um so those are listener questions i thought they were really good um listeners brought their a game absolutely 
and and those are those are always fun. We are going to talk about the Red Hawks, uh, or they the Red the River Hawks. I'm sorry. <laughs> All the UMass Law fans listening are going to be really irritated that I call them the River Hawks. I wonder if they're like St. Joe's and they have a like bird that just flaps its wings the whole game because that would be really awesome. Um, <laughs> the River Hawks were actually better, like Kimpum was, than I thought they were going to be. Uh, uh, that that's my first observation. Yeah, for a team that hasn't been in Division One for very long, they've they've been pretty good. I mean, they just in in terms of like, hey, they've they've kind of stayed like at least like like they've never been great they've never been awful which is pretty good for a team that's only been in division one for like six or seven years and uh uh one thing that's been really impressive when you even just you know they, i i of course the first thing you do with these teams that you don't know much about is go look at their ken palm profile and the thing you'll see is they've actually been a really good offensive team like for a for, for a mo- low major league uh you know you see that they uh they've actually put in a, a lot of like uh just kind of reading them off last year they were 144th in offense the year before they were one. 74th the year before they're 194th the year before that they're 170 or 173rd and again those numbers might not sound um very good but like when you're dealing with a low major league for teams to get you know in in that range is is really good so uh that got me just looking into looking into their um their synergy profile a little bit more looking a little bit more at their their offense and man one thing I, i i just love like I'm always just fascinated at how different mid-major teams or low-major teams approach playing better talent because, like, man, it's when you're going into a game with better, you know, you're playing better talent than you know you have, like, how do you, what do you do? Do you try to, you you know, throw junk defenses? Do you try to trap? Do you try to junk up the game with junk defenses? Uh, But one thing I really like that they do is, man, they just like identified their best player. Who's was uh, Christian. I'm not sure how to say his last name. Uh, Lutet, I'm not sure, but, um, uh, you know, they had him, they had him running the ball. They just had him running ball screens over and over and over again, which is actually why, you know, I wouldn't have suspected second, like you mentioned, uh, like you mentioned Neil in terms of how much pick and roll they, they, you know, they play, but it also does make sense because I watched them play. It was him and it was a player that is going to be returning for them in Obadiah Noel. Um, uh, that just ran ball screen after ball screen after ball screen. And it was like those two players just had the ball all the time, which I think, again, if you're a low major team and you know um, you've got one or two players that are really capable of creating offense, like why mess around by throwing it, by giving it to to guys that you're not as sure of. So, so that's something I'm kind of expecting when they play Florida is to put the hands in the, in the, uh, Oh, you know what? The, the new OB now that OB Toppin is gone, Obadiah Noel from, uh, from UMass Lowell uh, taking the reins. I think the ball is going to be in his hands a ton as he tries to create and there. And yeah, that, that'll be what I'm watching for. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. So, and, and I, you can go back even further and this decade, um, they, Pat Duquette teams, uh, so that's all UMass Lowell. It's the only place he's been a head coach. Uh, they rank fifth in the country in ball screen usage. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, so, like, only four programs have, have done more ball screening since they joined Division One than them in last year. Uh, they were second behind the D'Antoni Marshall uh, thundering herd attack. So it's kind of cool that that Florida manages to schedule that game before they play Virginia, uh, because I think I think based on the NCAA tournament, you know, Mike White and the staff have a pretty good idea how to deal with uh, with uh, blocker mover. 
but you know, do they? What's what's going to be challenging is is the hybrid of both, and obviously, you know, UMass is not going to have the the personnel. Uh, that Virginia has, but but it's good to see those tempos at game speed or see those sets at game speed. And the other thing that's cool about them is they play pretty fast. So Florida's going to like play at a high speed. I think they were 72nd, I wrote down in tempo. So if I wrote that down correctly, um, that's that's pretty quick and, and efficient at it, like Eric said, because remember, uh, Kim Palm has adjusted for, for strength of schedule and, and opponent strength. So, you know, you're talking about a pretty efficient group and one that plays pretty quick. Kind of cool because the Gators are going to get to play the way they want to play. And then we'll see if, you know, they are the, the rumored turnover machine that, that Mike White was worried about last year. Yeah. And I mean, hey, if, even if they don't end up seeing a bunch of ball screen again uh, when they play Virginia, it's like, man, it's it's 2020. Your ball screen defense will be tested many other times by many other teams uh, in yeah. 2020. Like, honestly, when I talk to any coach about how they, you know, their their team, whether it's high school, whether it's college, whether it's anything else, it's uh, kind of the first question is like, hey, how do you guard ball screens? Because that's the biggest question about how you play defense in in 2020 and uh uh again to be able to uh to go play a game like this where they are going to run a bunch of ball screens it's like hey let's let's see if florida's hedging let's see who can hedge let's see uh let's, let's see how all these these bigs can handle because yeah my man obi noel is going to be uh, handling yeah. it so uh so it'll be uh i'm really looking forward to that like i, I it is a really intelligent game and I, I don't know how much that played into when florida scheduled them if they if they knew obviously it was a little bit of a last minute change because and i I don't know if there's like any like i I was gonna use the word collusion that's way more conspiratorial (laughs) i wanted to sound but right after uh right after that because florida was going to play maine that game got canceled and then umass lowell came on florida's schedule and then maine was announced as an opponent for virginia so i'm not sure if there was like something worked out between between that but whatever whatever it is um i i you know i looking at how main played and how umass lowell played i, I mean from a development standpoint for this team i'd rather the i'd rather the gators play umass lowell so i think it works out for them and uh the other thing too is uh is umass lowell they play uh 96 percent uh via synergy uh man-to-man defense i watched a bunch of their possessions and yeah just uh some pretty straight ahead man-to-man defense they really really struggle to guard they don't have size inside uh, but uh, if they do play mostly man like they did last year, it'll be a, give Florida a chance to kind of get their get their feet under them with whatever defense they want to run. Of course, you know Neil, I think you and I are just like fascinated to see what the offense looks like. And um, you know, sometimes when you play these mid major games early or low major games, you're going to see a bunch of junk defenses, and you like don't even really know what Florida is going to run when they play a more prototypical defense. But yeah, UMass Lowell probably going to play man defense, and we'll really get to see what what Florida's looking to run. Yeah, and oh, by the way, for your like, if you if you are into the conspiracy theory thing, which seems to be a thing in, in at least our country right now, maybe not yours, Eric. <laughs> but uh, if you're into the conspiracy theory thing, uh, Maine runs a triple drive offense. <laughs> they don't run many sets, so you know, I don't know, Tony Bennett. I'm gonna pack line it against some dribble drive. Get my guys ready to play. Florida intelligent <laughs> scheduling. Hey, hopefully they can wear down Virginia a little bit and uh, 
Maybe yeah. they could be. Maybe if Florida is playing dribble drive, they can. Uh, you know, if they're if Virginia is all dialed into the uh, to the quality from uh, from Maine, hopefully Florida can uh, bring a little bit more spice to the dribble drive and uh, yeah, maybe surprise them. But uh, again, I think when you're not able to play like a secret scrimmage, uh, Florida was not one of the teams that you know televised or or streamed uh, an inter inter squad scrimmage, which I really yeah. wish they did because I watched like a bunch last week. Uh, yeah. I mean, Florida probably hasn't had as much, you know, kind of exhibition scrimmage kind of game action as they normally would. So you've got to use this opportunity to get better. And I think it's uh, yeah, it's going to be a good game for that. No, definitely will be. And then, uh, you know, we'll get a, we'll get a Friday morning deal with uh, a black Friday morning, um, which we will have a Virginia preview. Eric and I will work all that out. Uh, with a couple of uh, Naismith watch finalists, what better way to close the show than than congratulating Keontae Johnson on his selection as preseason SEC Player of the Year and and his uh, name on the Naismith list along with Sam Hauser, who plays for Virginia. Yeah, I, I almost was wondering if Kia Clark was going to make that list as well. I I uh, yeah, I, as 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 someone as you may recall, I'm not as high on Hauser as as maybe you are. Um, but uh, I thought I think Kia Clark might be the best player from Virginia. But uh, but anyways, we're here to talk Yante Johnson, a player who is awesome and and we love and uh, is probably going to be the last season we get to see him in orange and blue. So uh, really good honor for him. Uh, obviously, like the the watch list is like 50 players. So like it's you know it's obviously great he's on the list. It's uh we'll we'll see if he uh, can you know play to the caliber we think he can and stay on the mid-season watch list because uh for those of you who might remember carrie blackshire and uh, andrew nemhart were on the preseason watch list last year for this award and were nowhere to be found on the mid-season watch list when it gets pared down so uh i i really do think that right up you know i, I think keontae johnson's gonna have an opportunity to you know be, be at least somewhere in the mix for this award. I, if Florida is a team that's like somewhere in the top 10 and, and he is their best player, uh, he'll be in that mix. Yep. I agree with that. And Matt Norlander uh, tweeted that 97% of all Americans in the last five seasons have been Naismith watch players. So it's almost impossible to come out of the Naismith watch and become an all American. I think, and in fact, I think that the exceptions were all true freshmen. <laughs> so there you go. <clears throat> um, that's our show. We will be back uh, to talk UVA. It's just a, a scheduling thing. We got to figure out if we're gonna like preview UVA before the UMass Lowell game, which seems more likely. But Eric and I'll talk about it. Thanks for listening. Uh, it's game week. And obviously, uh, good luck to the Gators against Vanderbilt uh, Saturday in Nashville. Thanks, everybody.